Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, a book and an exhibition about Michelangelo. Given that there's a pandemic going on and we are all stuck inside, I thought we'd start with the book. My first guest is William E. Wallace, the author of Michelangelo, God's Architect, the story of his final years and greatest masterpiece. The book offers a rich, lively biographical examination of the last two decades of Michelangelo's life a period when he became the architect of St. Peter's Basilica and other buildings, even as he continued to sculpt and draw. Wallace is a professor of art history at Washington University in St. Louis. He's the author or editor of seven books on Michelangelo. Michelangelo, God's Architect, was published by Princeton University Press. Amazon offers it for $21.16 on Kindle. On the second segment, Julian Brooks on Michelangelo, Mind of the Master at the J. Paul Getty Museum. Bill Wallace in a minute, but first... If you haven't heard our first bonus episode of the pandemic, don't miss it. It pushed to podcatchers and to Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and the rest on Monday, and it's up on manpodcast.com, too. It features Mary Reed Kelly and Patrick Kelly and Ursula von Reitingsvard. They were all terrific, generous, thoughtful, and even emotional about how they're navigating art and art making in the middle of a global crisis. We'll have another bonus episode for you next week, and I think on the day after Easter, too, at least. These bonus episodes also include messages from art museums around the country about what they're offering their audiences at this challenging time. Don't miss any of it. William Wallace, after the break. This winter, the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents a world premiere work by Sadie Benning. In Pain Thing, their rumination on responses to trauma and collective experience plays out across 63 mixed-media panels. Also at the WEX, LaToya Ruby Frazier presents The Last Cruise, her critically acclaimed examination of the lives of GM workers in Lordstown, Ohio, after their plant was shuttered. And Stanya Khan completes the season with No Go Backs, a world premiere short film that follows two teens as they leave behind an endangered society. The exhibitions are on view through April 26th. For more information, go to wexarts.org. Support comes from Getty. In Recording Artists, a Getty podcast series, art historian Helen Moldsworth explores the lives and work of six women artists. Yoko Ono, Ava Hesse, Betty Saar, Helen Frankenthaler, Alice Neal, and Lee Krasner. Rare interviews from the 60s and 70s, plus new interviews with contemporary artists, help unpack what it meant, and still means, to be a woman making art. Named a binge-worthy art podcast by the New York Times, you can listen now at getty.edu slash recordingartists. And we're back. William Wallace, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much for having me. This book tells the story of the last 20 years or so of Michelangelo's career. So from roughly the installation of Pope Julius II's tomb in Rome in 1545 through to Michelangelo's death in 1564, a period that covers a preposterously large number of popes. (laughs) As you note in the book, it is probably the part of Michelangelo's career that is least familiar. What drew you to it? I had just completed a general biography of all of Michelangelo's life. And in writing that biography, I realized that the last few years were the part of Michelangelo's life that we knew the least about, and yet they actually turned out to be one of the busiest of his life. And I think especially for Americans, we're 
mostly interested in the heroic younger Michelangelo, the carver of the David, the carver of the Pietà, the painter of the Sistine ceiling. But Michelangelo completed the Sistine ceiling when he was 37 years old, and he still had 53 years to live. And so I began to realize that there's a, a long history after some of those heroic early works that we just don't pay as much attention to. And yet these were some of the works that Michelangelo himself found to be much more important to him, to his salvation, to his sense of contribution to mankind, to culture, to God, for the salvation of his soul, really. And so I became ever more interested, really, in this really kind of untold story of the last few years of Michelangelo's life when he was in his 70s and 80s, when most people think he's ready to die, and he actually becomes busier than ever. And, and when he was aware of his own mortality, too, as, as you note repeatedly in the book. So, so in those years, when he's in his 70s and 80s, what is his overarching professional focus? What is he spending most of his time on? Well, he's moved from Florence to Rome and spends the last 30 years of his life in Rome, even though he's a Florentine, and he dreams always of returning back to home. But the last 30 years of his life, largely, once he has installed the tomb of Julius II, as you suggested in 1545, he feels like he's now accomplished everything he needs to have done in life. And he was, of course, always thought of himself as a sculptor. And this was his largest and greatest sculptural accomplishment, the installation of the tomb of Julius II. So he felt like in 1545, he was done. But from that moment on, really, he became completely involved in the building of modern Rome. He became an architect, even though he repeatedly said, architecture is not my profession. And he really didn't become an architect until age 40 with absolutely no training whatsoever. But he taught himself what he needed to know, and he became probably the most influential architect of all time. One of the things that comes out loud and clear from the book is what it meant and what it was like to be an architect in Michelangelo's Rome and how enormously different it is from how we think of the profession now. In fact, nearer the end of the book than the beginning, there's a two or three page intentionally run on sentence or paragraph that details all the things Michelangelo would have had to do day to day and week to week while architecting. Can you give us an idea of what being an architect in his Rome required and maybe also how it would have been particularly demanding of somebody his age? We'll start with the last because the average age in Renaissance was something between 40 and 45. So Michelangelo kind of expected to be dying at age 40 or 45 and did it for about 50 years. So when he's in his 70s and 80s, he's fully expecting to die all the time. And yet he's undertaking the largest construction project in the world by undertaking St. Peter's. And really the idea of an architect in the Renaissance, there was no capital A to architect. It was not the privileged profession that we think of it as today. It was really a craft. You had to know everything. You had to know rock. You had to know stone. You had to know rope. You had to know carting. You had to know donkeys. You had to know cost, effectiveness. You had to know how to build a hoist. And you had to know how to manage workers and work crews. And we're talking about 200 or more people working at St. Peter's on a day-to-day -day basis. 
And some of these people are working on a work site that's a gigantic work site, some of them at 150 feet in the air over a vast open space. And here Michelangelo is supervising these workers and organizing the donkeys that are bringing the water from the Tiber River that are needed to mix the mortar. And of course, he has to make sure that the travertine blocks are arriving on a regular basis from the Tivoli quarries that are some 15 miles away. And he has to make sure the rope is strong enough to haul these blocks up to the level of the timbre 150 feet in the air. And that there are thousands and thousands of bricks ready to be made on kilns on site in order to build a dome. So he's thinking about every one of these facets. Every aspect of the construction industry is his responsibility. One element of the job you didn't mention, but that is ever present in the book, is how important it was for Michelangelo to manage the Vatican bureaucracy itself, to get to do what he wanted to do and the way he wanted to do it. Maybe one way of addressing that question is by telling us who Antonio de Sangallo was and how his, even after his death, ideas and plans and starts and stops and even in some ways his lack of competence required so much of Michelangelo's time. Well, Antonio de Sangallo was one of about six architects who had preceded Michelangelo at the building site of St. Peter's. And actually, he was a competent builder and architect and had a long resume, you might say, of building. And he also had the longest tenure as the architect of St. Peter's before Michelangelo. So he had the most effect on what the building looked like before Michelangelo took over. It's just what he built and what he did was dramatically ugly to what Michelangelo conceived that St. Peter's should be, which was the original design of Donato Bramante, who was the original architect, who provided a design that even Michelangelo thought was clear and beautiful and is actually the design of St. Peter's that we see today. In the 40 years since Bramante died and the building proceeded, we had a series of architects and Antonio da Sangallo took over and had about 15 years to do a lot of damage to that original design and impose his own ideas on this building project. So he had a gigantic model built and he had organized his own work crews and he had his own ideas about what this building was going to look like. And we have this wonderful passage that Michelangelo describes what this church would look like if it was actually built according to Sangalo's design, that it was so gigantic that it, was, it would have no light inside and there would be room for coining of false money and the rape of nuns. And there would take an hour and a half for the people to close it up at night. And there would be all kinds of places for lurking thieves and etc. So Michelangelo took over from Antonio da Sangallo when he died in 1546. And really, the church was in a kind of disastrous state only because we've had this accumulation of various different architectural ideas over the course of 40 years, all of which had, in a sense, ruined the original clear conception of Donato Bermante. I think the story of how some of the, I'm going to use the wrong term here, perimeter walls that Sangallo had designed and indeed that had been built, that Michelangelo had to kind of redo or undo. Maybe that story is a good way of 
detailing some of the combination of administrative and design challenges that Michelangelo faced and embraced? Well, Sangallo, one of the things that he did was, in a sense, almost add like rings of a tree to the original design of uh, Bramante. And, and the building got bigger and bigger with more and more rings, thicker and thicker bark, uh, let's say, around the original core of the building. And the bark had gotten so thick with Sangallo, he built this, as you said, a perimeter wall, that if it had been completed, would have required the knocking down of Michelangelo's own Sistine Chapel. So the greatest work of fresco painting in the world would have been completely destroyed if Sangallo's design for St. Peter's had actually been realized. So I think maybe this was Sangallo's purposeful effort to eradicate Michelangelo's greatest work of painting in the world. They were not extremely friendly with one another. And thank God Sangallo died in time before the Sistine had to come down and Michelangelo was able to rescue St. Peter's largely by starting to peel away this bark that Sangallo had attached to this the building core. But it was a, a remarkable thing that not only the sequence of popes, but Michelangelo himself had the courage really in the first few years to deconstruct an awful lot of construction that had taken place in the 40 years. So his first acts were not of building, but of deconstructing some of the misguided construction that had taken place before Michelangelo. And he had to deal with lots of Sangalo loyalists who wanted no part of that. Indeed, because Sangalo himself had been in place for, as I said, some 15 years. So he had supervisors and work crews, all of whom had been working for him as a director. And of course, they were loyal to his design and his ideas, and they understood what he was intending. And so they were extremely skeptical of this new guy, Michelangelo, who really did not have the same level of experience. And they really didn't know who he was. He was a painter and a sculptor, not necessarily as well experienced an architect as Antonio de Sangallo. So they were naturally skeptical when Michelangelo took over. We will come back to St. Peter's, but I don't want to leave the impression it was the only architectural project Michelangelo has in these last two decades of his life. So while he may have been at St. Peter's often, nearly every day at times, but nearly every one of the popes Michelangelo serves in, in these 20 years has other architectural projects and other all kinds of projects, really, that, that, that he wants Michelangelo to take on. And one of the fun passages of the book details how Michelangelo's ideas filter into projects that he did not necessarily personally oversee. How did his involvement as kind of, is a bad phrase, an executive thinker work, as it were? <laughs> Executive thinker isn't so bad. By his 70s and 80s, Michelangelo was absolutely recognized to be the greatest artist of all time, not necessarily yet the greatest architect, but because he was hired by a sequence of popes, all of whom gave him the authority as the papal architect of Rome, he had garnered such great authority over time and because of his age and because of his previous accomplishments that really he is he had the authority and the of the papal bureaucracy behind him and the, of the popes themselves, the personal authority of the popes behind him. And so 
even though he himself could not personally supervise each of these gigantic projects all around Rome, more than a half dozen projects for which he was an advisor or a supervisor. Sometimes he gave a design, sometimes it was verbal, sometimes it was drawn, sometimes he was actually on site and could give verbal directions. But the fact is, one of the most difficult lessons I think Michelangelo finally learned in his life and what he learned by his 70s and 80s was that he could not do everything himself. In his earlier life, he had carved the David entirely by himself. He almost painted the Sistine ceiling entirely by himself. But in his 70s and 80s, he had learned really to collaborate and to surround himself with extremely loyal and very understanding capomaestri or supervisors who understood his projects and through verbal directions or even very sketchy kind of directions, could carry out his ideas. And they had the full weight of his authority in carrying out these projects scattered all across Rome. And in fact, Michelangelo even lived with these people that were closest to him, two or three of his most trusted supervisors, architectural supervisors, actually lived in his household. Another great myth of Michelangelo is that he was a loner and an absolutely misanthropic individual. But in fact, his household was flourishing. There was something between eight and 10 people at all times living there, both male and female servants and helpers and assistants, as well as these one or two very important supervisors, architectural supervisors, who would talk to Michelangelo on a daily basis and who carried the weight of his authority all around Rome and were able to carry out his ideas, not only when he wasn't on site, but when he wasn't even alive. Maybe one way of pinning a specific example to how that worked is Michelangelo's involvement in the Villa Giulia. What was it and how was he involved there? The Villa Giulia is a wonderful example because we have a lot of documentation of, we have names and names of all the people who were involved in this. And it's a long list of architects and we know the names of all these people. And at the end of this list is Michelangelo. So he's, he's named there. People have been struggling for years, you know, like, well, what did he actually do? You know, this is a villa outside of the gates of Rome, and it's mostly about, you know, a design for a pleasure villa for a pope that didn't last, didn't live for very long. And, you know, not as serious a project as some of the other projects that Michelangelo wanted to carry out, except the pope was interested in it. So here's a case where Clearly, Michelangelo was working in tandem with some of these other people on that list, and they were coming to him to get their designs approved and to see if the Pope thought that Michelangelo's opinion was the right opinion. His opinion was authority. His approval of their design was the stamp of approval. And if the Pope said, listen to what Michelangelo says, that was good enough. He didn't have to do very much and actually carry out the Villa Giulia because his verbal authority was enough to empower the people who are actually on the job and actually carrying out this project, carrying out this pleasure villa for the Pope. It's also an example that really points to how much and how a series of popes leaned on Michelangelo and how they didn't move, not, none of them moved on from him, how he stayed important to a series of them. It's astonishing. He, in, in those last 18 years of his life, he worked for five popes. 
he outlived them all. He out actually lived 12 popes in his lifetime, but in the last 18 years, he outlived five. And it, at the death of each pope, he expected, okay, I'm going to retire and I'm going to return to Florence. I'm done now. No, no new pope is going to need me or expect me to do any more work. But what's kind of astonishing is that every new pope immediately reestablished or re reauthorized his position as papal architect. There was absolutely no hesitation, no question whatsoever that he was the person in charge of all of these projects and that there was not going to be any kind of interruption or disruption to his coordinating and directing all of these various gigantic architectural projects across Rome. Throughout the book, you point to how Michelangelo wielded an acute bureaucratic skill, including sending to Florence for a document when he thought it would give him particular necessary sway with the new pope. Michelangelo, the administrator and bureaucrat, emerges from these pages as important as really almost any other kind of Michelangelo we have. No, it is surprising. And it is one of the things that emerged from my study of Michelangelo. And it actually came before this book when I first wrote about Michelangelo at San Lorenzo in Florence. It was the building of that, those two projects for the Medici, where he really became as I said in my subtitle, uh, Michelangelo, the genius, he's a genius and everybody recognizes him, but the genius as entrepreneur. And the entrepreneur was a, a somewhat anachronistic word to apply to somebody in the Renaissance, but part of being an entrepreneur was being an extremely efficient bureaucrat. And he really learned how to become a bureaucrat and become an efficient manager of people, a manager of paper. The one thing he somewhat failed at was a manager of money. He was not a particularly good manager of money, but then again, he had access to papal coffers. So for the most part, he's working for popes who have unlimited funds. And, and fortunately, when he was working in Rome and working for the popes, he did not have to manage or work on the financial side. That's the part that was all taken care of largely by the bureaucracy of the Vatican. But it was in Florence when he was working for the Medici that he got a little bit into trouble about managing money and spending more than he probably should have on marble and things like this. But in terms of organizing, the organizational skills of people, materials, transport, logistics, he became an absolute expert. We've been talking about architecture and building, but Michelangelo also undertakes some sculpture projects in these years. There are two in particular about which you write at length. Both were projects really just for himself, one for his tomb and one that you describe as a, a kind of meditation. Your phrase is that carving had become a kind of prayer for Michelangelo. What were those two projects and how were they resolved or not? Yes, the first one was the most ambitious sculpture that really Michelangelo ever undertook. It's the so-called Florentine Pietà, and we call it the Florentine Pietà only because it's now in Florence as opposed to the Rome Pietà that's the very famous early Pietà that most people are familiar with. The Florentine Pietà is the most ambitious sculpture. It's not the largest. It's the second largest. The David, of course, is the largest of sculptures, but it's by far the most ambitious and complicated because it's actually four figures carved from a single block of marble. And there's not actually even an ancient work of sculpture by the Romans that Michelangelo knew that had four figures carved from a single block. The most ambitious ancient sculpture was the Laocoon. 
And this was a sculpture that was famously discovered in 1506. And Michelangelo was in Rome when it was discovered. And it was supposedly entirely carved three figures from a single block of marble. And was celebrated by the ancient writer Pliny as such that it had been carved from this great single block. Well, Michelangelo knew and learned that it was not actually carved from a single block of marble. It had been pieced together. So he had from very early on this ambition to carve something as great as antiquity and even greater, more ambitious. So he set out to carve a four-figure stone sculpture group. And this was intended actually to mark his own grave. It was intended as a grave marker. So this was, on one hand, an extremely ambitious artistic undertaking, but it's also an extremely complicated psychological undertaking. You're carving your own grave marker. To carve your grave marker and to finish your grave marker is, in a sense, to be done with life, I suppose. So at some point, he ran into, I think, both technical problems in carving four figures from a single block, but also very deep set psychological problems of really not wanting to complete this work or having trouble finishing it, because to finish it would be to finish with his life. So he eventually abandoned it. And it's somewhat damaged and abandoned and not ever completed perfectly. And yet it's extremely still, it's still to this day, an extremely moving work of art and very, very personal, very close to Michelangelo. One of the great masterpieces of the Opera del Duomo Museum in Florence. Then, because of that abandonment, he took on another work that was also going to be a pieta, that is the mother Mary supporting her dead son. And this is the work that you describe or I describe as a kind of an act of prayer. I don't think he probably ever intended to finish it, although it too was the same subject and probably intended in some ways to be another attempt at a grave marker, but it had all the same problems. And in a sense, I think this was a work that he kept carving right up until the last few days of his life. We know that he was carving just a few days before he died on this last Pietà, which is in Milan, the so-called Rondinini Pietà. And here I think he was carving because he was, he was carving to be close to God. In carving Christ, he's touching Christ, he's touching his, his Lord. And I think this is how it's in some ways a prayer. It's a way of him being close to his to his his own god and in some ways saving his soul you mentioned that both of these sculptures still exist and are are are, are known to the field but that they weren't finished in the traditional way we think of a sculptor finishing an object particularly the florentine pieta was discarded by Michelangelo, but not thrown out at, at, at the risk of using a terrible phrase. How is it kind of finished and how did it come to survive? And what might that tell us about how Michelangelo worked in these last years? Because it's such an ambitious and large sculpture, of course, even when he decided that he was done with it, that he was ne never going to finish it, it weighs several tons. And so it would, did not leave his house. And what's really kind of astonishing is that he still lived with this unfinished sculpture for a number of years. And it was a constant kind of reminder of kind of memento mori, a constant reminder of his own death and of his own failure in some ways, of his 
inadequacy to, to complete this sculpture, of his inability to complete this most ambitious sculpture. Finally, he turned it over to a student who kind of repaired it, someone who was very close to him, a very good sculptor, Tiberio Calcani, uh, did some little repair work on this sculpture, and then he gave it to a friend. And finally, the friend, a very close friend, a banker friend, had it moved, but it was in a very ambitious and large project to move this sculpture away from Michelangelo's house, which finally he did. But it is an important moment, I would say, in the history of art where a broken, abandoned, unfinished sculpture is nonetheless worth preserving and admiring and keeping. And nobody then tried to perfect it or finish it other than what was done in Michelangelo's own house by his own very close pupil. And it remains a kind of unfinished sculpture. It's maybe the first great unfinished work of art that's been exhibited in a museum ever since. It is in these years near the end of his life that Michelangelo meets and, shall we say, tolerates Giorgio Vasari, who is a fellow artist, but who also did a number of other things, including, uh, of course, writing. And, of course, you live with a, a, so to speak, with a delightful Vasari at the St. Louis Art Museum, a painting made in 1554 or so, so just a couple years after Vasari meets Michelangelo. What was their relationship like? Oh, it's a marvelous, it's a, it's a marvelous relationship and a long one. Of course, Vasari is 36 years younger than Michelangelo. And generally, Michelangelo was attracted to people that were quite a bit younger than him, a generation or even more than a generation younger. So yes, you, the way you first described it is pretty right. Tolerate, I think, is probably the best single word to put up with Vasari because, you know, Vasari was a sycophant. There was no doubt about it. Vasari was wanted very much to be a friend of Michelangelo, much more than Michelangelo wanted to be a friend of Vasari, because fame by association was very important to Vasari. But also, Vasari served Michelangelo's purposes. I mean, he did write the lives of the artists in 1550, and he sent Michelangelo a copy right away. And as some of your listeners may know, Vasari can be a rhetorical exaggeration beyond belief. And the opening sentence of Michelangelo's life of Vasari goes on for 222 words in the original Italian. And it's, it's so ridiculously exaggerated. God has you know, looked down on the world and seen the failure of our sins and, and, and the ridiculousness of art. And he's decided to send into the world a savior. And that savior is Michelangelo. So this is how Michelangelo's life opens on Vizari. So, it, and this is published in Michelangelo's own lifetime. So this is kind of embarrassing, you know, to Michelangelo to be described in such a manner. Moreover, Vizari goes on and talks about some of the works that Michelangelo was at that time making in 1550, one of which was the Florentine Pietà. And Vizari had seen that sculpture and was in that first life praising it as the greatest sculpture that Michelangelo was ever going to carve. And yet, then just a few years later, Michelangelo abandons it. So in a sense, Michelangelo's reading his own life and, you know, Vasari is maybe praising the wrong things, let's say, and describing Michelangelo in ways that are both embarrassing and maybe inappropriate uh, in Michelangelo's own mind. So Michelangelo actually commissions, in a sense, his own life 
from his pupil and friend Ascanio Condivi, who three years later writes his own life and starts out in a way that Michelangelo more honestly approves. Nonetheless, Vasari continues to, you know, be very friendly to Michelangelo and writes to him on a regular basis, much more regularly than Michelangelo writes back. But he's very, very kind, and, and Michelangelo appreciates it, especially when Michelangelo starts to lose his family members, as he does one after another after another. And this is one of the sad parts of this story, is that Michelangelo outlives everybody. Uh, as, since he lives almost to, 80, almost to 90 years old, he outlives every one of his family members. And so Vasari, who's living in Florence, is kind of his, Michelangelo's lifeline back to his hometown. And he's very, very sympathetic to all these tribulations that Michelangelo goes through. And eventually, I think Michelangelo becomes kind of grateful to Vasari's attentions. So, so two more things. We'll get back to St. Peter's to wrap up. But one of the really fun things about the book is that it paints a portrait of Michelangelo's Rome, of contemporary daily life, of how and where Michelangelo lived in and moved through the city, what his neighborhood was like, who he encountered. Could you sketch for us what what his Rome was like, what his day-to-day Rome was like? His day-to-day Rome was much less sophisticated than, let's say, his native Florence. Florence, at least by this time, was a city that had paved streets and was pretty well organized. You could go about at night Kind of with safety and things like this, but Rome was not nearly so well organized. Even though the papacy is there, we don't have uh, policing of streets. Many of the streets are not paved. There's a lot of animals wandering around. There's an awful lot of corruption, and there's the, it's a very dangerous city. One just did not go out at night. And this was true from antiquity right to Michelangelo's time that you could get your throat slit very quickly by wandering into the bad neighborhoods. And there were a lot of bad neighborhoods, including the one Michelangelo lived in. He lived really at the edge of Rome. And the reason that he did so was because he was given this property by Pope Julius II very early in his career. And it's for the reasons of having space. Uh, He needed a lot of space in order to store all these marble blocks that he had to build the Julius tomb. So he lives very close to Trajan's column, which we now think of as right in the center of Rome, but at the time was very much at the edge of Rome. It's very close to the area of the Forum and the Colosseum. But these were not settled parts of Rome. and Nobody lived there, only thieves and prostitutes. The Colosseum was kind of a notorious place for bandits to hang out. So this was not a particularly salubrious part of Rome to live in. Moreover, it's also very far away from water. The only water supply here, we don't have running aqueducts except one. The really, the main water supply is the Tiber River. And so Trajan's Column is a long way from the Tiber River. So the Tiber River provides drinking water, washing water, disposing water for bathrooms. And so it's everything. This is why there's so much disease and dysentery, et cetera, in the Renaissance. And so getting through Rome was, you know, it wasn't a well-organized city. Uh, we, we know Rome now today as a Baroque city from the 17th, mostly in the 18th century. But it's really a kind of densely populated, not as densely populated as Florence, but not as well-organized either as, uh, as Florence. And really 
sort of dangerous and dark, dirty streets with a lot of lot of prostitutes and a lot of crime. You've mentioned crime a couple times and, and, and personal danger a couple times. In the book, it really sounds like Michelangelo never goes to a quarry or to various other places alone. He's aware, well aware of being in his 80s and being vulnerable, and yet he's still enormously productive. No, it's true. Well, one of his very close couple maestri, or that is this one of the primary supervisors, was actually murdered on the job. So he was very aware of, you know, the potential of, of danger. And there was this one moment where he really wanted to obtain some marble and even maybe columns from one of the ancient Roman baths to use in St. Peter's. So they're they're taking materials from the Roman buildings in order to reuse them in the new building of St. Peter's. But the Roman baths, of course, are way, way out on the edge of the the modern city of, of Rome, the Renaissance city of Rome. And so he would never go out there all by himself as a 70 or 80 year old man. He would easily be a mark for bandits or thieves who would slit his throat and eat his horse. You know, his horse would be very valuable either to steal or to eat. So he would go there and, of course, accompanied by one or two of his, his assistants for protection. I said we'd get back to St. Peter's. I don't want to <laughs> give away the ending of the book, but in biographies or biography issues, the subject usually dies. <laughs> and, and surely everyone listening to this program knows that St. Peter's exists. So how did Michelangelo leave his impact on the completion of a building he never expected to live to see completed? It's a wonderful question, and it's really the remarkable accomplishment, I think, of Michelangelo at St. Peter's. That is, he repeatedly stated that he lived mainly to carry forward St. Peter's to a stage at which my design could not be spoiled or altered. And he decided he would live long enough and not abandon St. Peter's because he served for the love of God and did not want his design to be spoiled or altered in the way that he had to spoil and alter all the previous designs. And I think the essential way he did that was he built enough and he built the foundations for the dome that he never actually saw constructed. But the foundations of a building determine a building. And the foundations of that dome are the definition of that dome or help to define what that dome is going to be following upon those foundations. So he did, in fact, do enough to create the, the building that we see today. And what's really astonishing is that out of a 150-year building history, which is the whole building history of St. Peter's, Michelangelo is only responsible for about 18 years. And we have a number of architects before and after Michelangelo responsible for completing this 150-year building history. But St. Peter's is not Bramante's building. It's not Sangallo's building. It's not even Bernini's building or, or Carlo Moderno's or Giacomo della Porta. These are the people who finished it. It's Michelangelo's St. Peter's because his design was so powerful that people carried out his ideas even after his death. To use a lay term, the foundation of the dome is, is the drum, and we even have drawings of how Michelangelo wanted that to work, look, or at least his thinking through that. Yes, and really the drum is the really one of the most beautiful parts of St. Peter's dome. 
if you look, it's the thing that supports the dome, the curved part of the dome. But the drum is 50 feet tall, and that's the part that actually Michelangelo did all the construction for. And that drum is absolutely critical for supporting the dome and designing what is going to come on top of the drum, the dome. So that drum was absolutely the thing that Michelangelo was committed to in those 18 years to have completed. And that was the part of the design that would not be spoiled or altered. William Wallace, thanks for the book and thanks for speaking with me. Thank you, Tyler. This has been a delight. I really appreciate talking with you. Did you know that you can explore the Hammer Museum's exhibitions and programs from the comfort of your home? Watch hundreds of videos from an extraordinary array of programs, from political forums and panels to artist talks and literary readings. Or browse the Hammer's digital archives for images, essays, and research materials related to exhibitions and collections. Visit hammer.ucla.edu for details. Hammer Museum, free for good. Welcome back. Next up, Julian Brooks. Along with Emily J. Peters, Brooks is the co-curator of Michelangelo, Mind of the Master at the J. Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles. The Getty is temporarily closed due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The exhibition features 28 drawings, many on sheets that feature sketches on both sides of the paper. It is scheduled to be at the Getty through June 7th. The Cleveland Museum of Art, which debuted the exhibition, has produced an accompanying catalog which is distributed by Yale University Press. Amazon offers it for 29 bucks. Julian Brooks, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start in the simplest place of all with how Michelangelo regarded his drawings. Let's start with how he used them in his practice. Did he use them as studies, as preparations for works, as places to test ideas, or all of the above? All of the above, I would say. I mean, it drawing seems to have been absolutely central for everything Michelangelo did. You know, he would have compositional studies, figure studies, but also part of daily life. You know, he would, when he was ordering blocks of stone, he would draw a little diagram with measurements so that the people working in the quarry could understand that. You know, even when he was ordering vegetable, asking, you know, an assistant to go out and get vegetables. In one point, he like drew little pictures of the vegetables that the person had to go and get from the market. And, you know, he was just obviously an incredibly visual thinker. And and it was, drawing was second nature. You know, everything went down on paper. And I guess there are about 600 drawings that survive to this day that the field accepts as Michelangelo's. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's it's there have been sort of ebbs and flows over the last sort of hundred years, but I, the majority of scholars have settled on that number, and that goes from you know the most highly finished, sort of precious presentation drawing, finished to the nth degree, right down to like a little sketch for a block of stone, that sort of thing. There are within this exhibition drawings he made for frescoes and for sculptures and for architectural projects. Does he draw for each of those things differently? I think so. I mean, it's what's tricky is that we only have a part of what a proportion of the drawings that Michelangelo made in his whole career. So we d- we don't necessarily know what's missing. But Michelangelo's most famous works include the heroic male nude, as everyone calls it, and the and the figure is central in much, many of his conceptions. And when he draws for 
frescoes, it's about sort of composition. It's about the turning of the figure. It's about, in a way, the 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 way that the figure will be represented. With sculpture, he he obviously, in his mind, or perhaps in in brief sketches on paper, he would have an idea of the pose of the figure, sort of essentially within the stone. But then his drawings for sculpture tend to be very, they're very surface oriented, as one would expect, you know, because obviously he's got to render the, the effect in, in marble. And so, for instance, we have a couple of drawings that relate to the Medici Chapel in San Lorenzo. We have four actually out of eight for that project that exist. And you'll see they're made in black chalk with, with a very fine degree of, of, of finish to mimic the finish of the marble. And yet really understanding the, the surface of the, the skin as he renders it and the veins and the way everything is going to look. So studying from reality, but very much studying towards a sculpture. And then his architectural drawings are really just incredibly practical, you know, where he will study things in, in section and in plan and conceiving, obviously, the, the building in a, within a sort of larger three-dimensional space. So I think we're going to hit on examples of, of most of these as as we chat here. Let's start with the heroic male nude, seeing as, as you referenced it first a moment ago. There is a sheet here from Harlem that features two in action in the process of moving, dynamically moving male nudes that are that are that's in the show. What is this sheet from or 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 working toward? And what does this sheet show us Michelangelo doing particularly or uniquely well. Yeah, so we have two two drawings in the exhibition that relate to a project for a mural in the Palazzo della Signoria in Florence, in the main council chamber there. And he was commissioned to paint one wall, and Leonardo da Vinci a year earlier had been commissioned to paint the other wall. And so the authorities were intending to set this up as a competition. And at that point, and, you know, Michelangelo was known principally as a sculptor, and his David was the talk of Florence. And that obviously represented this sort of ideal male nude figure. And so in in the two drawings that we have for this commission, we see him working towards a large composition, which was, it was going to be a scene of, of it was meant to be a battle scene. But which, you know, you think of horses and and struggling soldiers and fighting. But, you know, Michelangelo in this case was sort of playing to his strength. So instead, he he chose a moment just before the battle when the soldiers were, were bathing in the River Arno and were then alerted to the arrival of enemy troops and scrambling to put on their armor and getting out of the river. And in this way, he could he could render any number of different poses, contorted poses, sitting, bending, striding, running, scenes of action. And these two drawings really study figures towards that composition. One of the sheets shows a, a figure striding in from the from the right of the composition. You know, what, it, what what's extraordinary to me is that that these these are really large, relatively large sheets. And he works in black chalk on these sheets. And nowadays, you know, you, you and I and every we all we're so used to looking at life drawings and life studies. You know, every figurative, figurative artist in history has has used and made life studies. But in many ways, these are really the the original life studies. Like most drawing in Florence at the time, you know, studios in the 1480s, 1490s in Florence were just starting to make life studies. But they they were often on small sheets of paper and pen and ink. 
Michelangelo suddenly, you know, in his practice, he enlarges the whole thing. He uses the whole sheet for a large study from life. And you see in this drawing, you see him working in black chalk, rendering the, the movement of the figure, but rendering it sort of anatomically, looking at the surface of the figure, but making shifts. You know, in this case, he turns the figure slightly more. So the line of the shoulder blade, he raises it up to make it clear the figure is turning more. And then he runs out of room on the left of the paper for the for the arm. And so he draws the arm again on the top right of the sheet. And it's it's wonderful in this way to see him sort of you know, wrestling with a particular problem. You know, he's got this running figure and trying to render it in the most most dynamic way possible and with torsion and turning and omitting the bits that he doesn't really need to study. He clearly, even though they you know, we have one very sketchy compositional design for this for this commission, but he obviously knew in his mind exactly what bits of the um you know how the figures were going to fit together. So in in these particular figure studies, he just omits for instance, in the case of this sheet, the, the bottom of the left leg, because he knows it's going to be covered by another figure. And I think it's just amazing to see how he he, he renders the, the figure with such fluency and such dynamism and sort of bringing into, in some ways, into three dimensions, the, the torsion of the figure as well. You know, I mentioned drawings for frescoes and drawings for sculptures and drawings for architectural projects. The next drawing I want to raise is one that I think we don't know what it was made for. It's a drawing that entered the Getty Collection just two years ago. How was it found? Why does it stand out as much as it does? And what might have been its purpose? Yeah, this is an extraordinary sheet, the sort of study of a mourning woman. The Getty acquired it in 2017 from, from a private collector, and that collector had bought it in auction at Sotheby's in 2001. But it's 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 the sort of drawing that, in a way, it sort of gives me hope, you know, because we have, we have some, you know, 600, as we've said, about 600 drawings by Michelangelo, but they still continue occasionally to emerge. And and the story behind the sheet is, is extraordinary. It was discovered in 1995 at a, in a British country house in the north of England called Castle Howard and discovered by a, somebody working for Sotheby's, a fellow called Julian Stock, who was doing a routine appraisal there. And he was, you know, going through everything, just assigning insurance values, that sort of thing, appraising things. And in the library, he came across this album of it was mainly sort of watercolors and drawings made by family members in the 19th century just stuck together pasted into an album probably assembled in the 19th century and it included some older drawings as well and he's sort of turning the pages and suddenly he saw this drawing this study of a morning woman and he says that he you know he just uttered one word you know an expletive beginning with f but he 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 just knew it was by Michelangelo. He, you know, he's very experienced in, in studying old master drawings. He said it was like recognizing his mother's handwriting on an envelope, that there's that sense of recognition. And, you know, sure enough, he then studied it with a, a whole series of Michelangelo scholars, and it's been fully accepted by, by all of them now. But we don't actually know what the drawing relates to. It doesn't relate to a sculpture or a painting, as far as we know, that Michelangelo was planning it is such a Michelangelo-esque drawing. I mean, you can, I can see why 
Julian Stock recognized it immediately. There is this, this very fine pen hatching and cross hatching that Michelangelo learned in early life in Domenico Ghirlandaio's studio. And, and in many ways, it seems to me like a sculptor's, the archetypal sculptor's drawing, because you'll see that the left sleeve, the upper arm, is, um, has white heightening on it. And so most of the drawing is done in pen and ink. And, and there's actually pen lines both underneath the white heightening and on top of it. And so Michelangelo is conceiving this figure in truly in three dimensions. It's this very solid, massive figure with, with you know, extensive drapery. And there's also the, the sort of wrapping of the pose, the way that the left arm wraps around the body, the right arm wraps around the head. That for me, it's it's just so Michelangelo. It's you know he he's the, he loves the sense of torsion and coiling. It's the sort of figure that you would expect to have at the foot of a crucifixion, say. So you know the mourning figure of Mary, you know, draped in 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 mourning, the the face is rather concealed, and funnily enough. A number of Michelangelo's followers seem to have known this drawing, and there's a copy of it in the Louvre that was made in red chalk that dates to maybe around 1540, um, substantially later from from the date of this drawing, which dates to around 1500-1505. And so it was clearly known in in sort of you know Michelangelo's circles. Um, it was actually also used by Giulio Clovio in the Farnese Hours. There was a figure in a very similar pose, but reversed. So it's sort of intriguing that you have this sheet that was obviously known at the time and perhaps sort of famous enough in the time and then just disappears basically until 1995. And, you know, it was in the collection of a, a collector called Jonathan Richardson Sr. And um, the little R at the bottom right of the corner, the bottom right corner of the drawing, is his. that's his collector's mark, his stamp, probably applied in the early 1700s. And Richardson wrote on the back of the mounts of his drawings, he, he would write if he knew the author of them. And what's interesting is that in this case, he didn't write Michelangelo, you know, which he was very rightly proud of his collection. And he definitely would have put Michelangelo on it if he could have. But he, so even by then, you know, nobody knew that it was by Michelangelo. And then it seems to have been bought by by a member of the Howard family at auction, probably in England in the 1700s and joined the family collection then. And then at some point in the 19th century, you know, a family member was compiling these albums of like scraps and watercolors and bits and bobs and, and pasted it in there. And, you know, suddenly there it is. So, it's amazing that these things do do get discovered and come to light. And, and it's wonderful that now, you know, it's here in the exhibition and, and here in the collection and can be admired by visitors for, for generations to come. It's a story full of the joy of discovery and the fear of the fugitive and then the mystery of figuring out what, what the heck the thing was for all, all, all at once. Uh, we also mentioned architectural drawing a moment ago. As I discuss with William Wallace elsewhere on this episode in 1546, Antonio de Sangallo died, which freed up a big job in Rome. So Pope Paul III appoints Michelangelo as the chief architect of the already underway St. Peter's. Uh, one of the key elements of Michelangelo's design, and in some cases redesign, was the design of the Grand Dome for the Basilica. There's a drawing in this exhibition that suggests how he thought through that dome. What does it show us about how Michelangelo was approaching or thinking through the dome? Yeah, I mean, it's it's you know it's amazing to me to to 
think of something like the Dome of St. Peter's sort of in construction. It seems one of those those monuments that, you know, whenever there's a, a picture of Rome or a news story about Rome or, you know, it's the Dome of St. Peter's that's shown and, and, and that is the great iconic, you know, that is Rome. And it's difficult to imagine sort of Rome without it. But it's, it's you know, Michelangelo's input to the dome was crucial. You know, you know he was a very practical architect. Uh, it's, the drawing shows a sketch of the, the dome seen in profile. And you have the two sort of skins, so to speak, the outer skin and the inner skin that he learned from Brunelleschi in Florence. And we know that he asked for, for various plans and measurements and things of the, the dome of Florence Cathedral that that was um, had been built by Filippo Brunelleschi. So we see in the drawing, we see him, you know, he clearly, he makes the, the section of the dome. But in fact, in this sheet, he's really studying the lantern, which is the, the, the bit on the top of the dome that lets in the light to the area below. And you'll see at the top left of the sheet, You'll see a number of you'll see a, a sketch of the lantern detailed with with the columns trying to work out the top, just sketching how it sort of sits on the on the dome, and we then see it drawn again on top of the dome in the center of the sheet. We see another subsidiary study at left. We also see see it in a section of of the lantern um, sketched with a sheet rotated ninety degrees at the bottom as well, as well as a ground plan of the lantern as well. So in this sheet, he's really studying how the lantern should be, how many columns it's going to be, what's going to be on top of those columns, how to articulate the spaces between the columns, and just you know how this this lantern is is going to look. And it's obviously, in a way, the the crown of the the dome. You know, one of the most important parts of the the whole construction. And what's interesting is that we see also some figures at the bottom of the sheet. And those actually don't relate to the lantern, but they were they were sketched through from from the back of the drawing, um, on which he he sketches a whole series of probably designs for sculpture for his friend Daniele da Volterra, and then he traces them through to the front of the sheet, and they were probably on the sheet before he started making these architectural studies over the top. We should note that paper cost a lot more back then, <laughs> so so using and reusing a sheet was common absolutely and and you know michelangelo seems to have used very often both sides of the sheet of paper and you know and he often would you know he'd do a central sketch that would be the focus of its attention and then all around it he would do all these subsidiary little sketches as well uh, you mentioned uh, right at the start that there are four sheets here that indicate or show us how Michelangelo was working through sculpture and, and planning sculpture, in this case, for uh, a tomb of uh, Giuliano de' Medici. Could you maybe pick one or two of those drawings and, and maybe talk us through how Michelangelo migrates an idea from, from the sheet into, um, into marble? So yes, we have a, a series of drawings for the tomb of Giuliano de' Medici in the, the Medici Chapel in San Lorenzo in Florence. And these drawings relate to the figure of Day on the right-hand side at the sort of foot of Giuliano. And they're wonderful. They're, they're sheets sort of made in black chalk, but they show him him drawing from life, but drawing towards a sculpture. And you know what's incredible, what's incredibly interesting to me is that you know, in general, Michelangelo seems to have been very purposeful 
in his drawings. Like, it's very rare that you find sort of doodles or, you know, he's not, you know, many, many, many Renaissance artists would sort of be wandering around the city sketching everything they see in sketchbooks. And and Michelangelo doesn't seem to be that sort of artist. He, is, he tends to draw to solve a particular problem. So in this case, when he's thinking of this this marble figure of day. He studies each particular part of the figure in detailed studies. So we have here we have here a figure of the back. Uh, sorry, we have here a drawing of the back of the figure of day. But the the emphasis is, you know, some of it is on obviously the muscles and the back and the way that they catch the light and the way, way that they're articulated. But in a way he's he's studying more the left arm and the way it wraps around the back of the figure. So you see here, he uses you know, all these little touches of black chalk to render the veins, to render the outline, the, the outline of the form as it will be in stone. And then to, to also render the rounding and the, the sheen of the marble as it catches the light. And you can see, you know, just around the elbow, you can see the veins, the prominence of the veins. And what I love about drawings is that you, you know, you're there at the, at the, at the beginning, you're there at the, the moment of creation, the moment that he's, he's studying through these issues. So just in the center of that, um, the study of the arm, we have a little phrase, in qua, that Michelangelo uh, writes, which sort of means up to here or in here. And, and we don't actually know quite what, what he's signaling to himself there, you know, that, that somehow that's blank space or that's where he's gonna you know he's signaling to himself some some aspect of the composition and then you have on the same sheet on the right you have a sketch of another sketch of the arm drawn over over this but where he actually he's trying to get it seems more of the outline of this particular arm as it wraps around the back and then yet another study at the lower left of the the sort of uh, flat of the um uh, I can't remember what it's called, but the the flat of the wrist as it looks out towards the towards the viewer. And there's also a sheet here where he's looking at the legs of, I guess, one of or maybe both of the figures. So this is, yeah, I mean, this is fascinating. It's the leg of the um, the same figure, the figure of day. Where so we have his this very prominent knee, which if you look at a picture of the, the sculpture, which we'll have on manpodcast.com, there's a there's a um, you see how prominent this knee is, and and we have here on on this sheet the study of a leg, as uh, particularly examining this this knee in profile as 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 one sees it, and and this drawing in particular is studying the ankle, it's studying the the veins going down to the ankle. And you see these, you know, he uses the black chalk almost like a sculptor's chisel here, where you have all these parallel lines. And sculptors would use a chisel called a claw chisel, which, you know, looks a bit like it sounds, like a claw. And you have all these parallel lines. You can see even the rounding of the, the lower leg is, is, is rendered with these parallel lines, as is every aspect. Often, you know, in different orientations, he'll turn the sheet and work around it. So we have this drawing of the very prominent part of the, the knee. But what's amazing is that we also have another drawing in the in the exhibition that studies of a left leg, the same leg, the same knee, but drawn from all different angles. So you see in that sheet, we see the knee studied from the other side, which was actually facing the wall. But Michelangelo is, is so obsessed with getting it right, with having the the knee sort of in the round and getting everything right, that he studies even the bit that's going to face the wall. He studies that part of it. And you then see a sequence of drawings above that 
a sketch where he studies the sort of we call it the knobbliness of the knee from the the top and from from the side really just figuring out how the the bones in the knee can be rendered in marble that's a great walkthrough we'll have images of all of those those things on on the website the exhibition also includes several drawings related to the Sistine Chapel frescoes which date to 1512 I think yeah. off the top of my head. Yeah. And what's what's it, what's great about them being here in in Los Angeles is not just as we'll talk about in a moment that they kind of reveal the dawn of these frescoes, but probably the most significant 20th century example or investigation of the frescoes are are also here in Los Angeles. Sam Francis's Basel mural at the Norton Simon, which is an abstraction away from the creation of Adam in the Sistine Chapel. So there are a couple of drawings here that suggest or, or show Michelangelo thinking through the, the literal hands that are reaching out toward each other in the Sistine Chapel. Can you walk us through or talk us through what you see in these drawings? It is. I mean, it's amazing to have to, to, that these sheets exist in the first place, but it's amazing to have them here. On this sheet, we see a number of stuff studies towards the figures surrounding um, God the Father in the, in the fresco, the creation of Adam. But we also have, in particular on the sheet I'm looking at, we have a study of the, the, the sort of definitive, the final study for the, the hand of God that has become such an iconic moment in the, in the history of Western art. It's sort of extraordinary to think of this you know, how do you render the hand of God and how do you, you know, is it going to be pointing? How are the fingers going to be? And on this sheet, you know, we have this sketch, a simple sketch in red chalk, just with the outline and then the and the, the, the interior sketched in, in with a little hatching. And probably, you know, a sketch that took Michelangelo, you know, three minutes or something. I mean, he's literally just just going going through, drawing very, very, very quickly. But studying, you know, it, it, it has such power in itself, this simple study of a hand. Um, you see the little finger, you see the, you know, he draws the end of the little finger, just this little round circle. And, and you know, one can imagine him then having to work this up through the stage of making a cartoon, i.e. a full-size drawing, and then putting that against the plaster to make the make the final fresco. And then on the on another sheet in the exhibition, we actually have God's outstretched arm as well with, with another study of the hand. And you see again him a lot of them he's in in a lot of these sketches, he's 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 studying the anatomy, but he's also studying the fall of light. Like where are the highlights going to be? Where are the the, the where is the shadow going to fall? There is one other Sistine Chapel-related drawing here, and it is for a seated male nude that is probably going to use the wrong phrase here, but that is kind of unusually well-articulated. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, this is an extraordinary drawing to have, and and it's the the most, the finest of all the surviving Sistine Chapel drawings. It shows an ignudo, you know, Michelangelo conceived these male nude youths that would punctuate the, the ceiling at various intervals, again, playing to his strength and of representing the heroic male nude. And what's interesting to observe is that in these figures, they begin, you know, sitting in fairly sort of standard seated poses and then become more and more animated and dynamic as the um, ceiling goes on. So in this red chalk drawing, he studies one of these ignudi who has his, he has this amazing diagonal sort of Z-shaped pose for the body. So the left arm is raised 
the the body is on a very diagonal slant. Um, you can see in the drawing how the figure is seated. You know, it's drawn drawn from life, and you can see how the figure's seated on a sort of surface covered in a drapery. But the whole figure, in a way, almost seems seems balanced on this this left toe that is rendered tucked under, that almost you know carries the whole figure, and it's it's rendered to an, to the most extraordinary degree of finish and this is where one almost feels for me the joy of michelangelo's drawing it you know he's working against time on this commission he's desperate to get it done but he's just when he's confronted with this 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 figure he just really seems to enjoy the surfaces to enjoy the articulation of all the different muscles in the back. And then I love the sense of, you know, you have the highlights down the, the central axis of the figure, but then the face he studies in another drawing and the left arm. And he just he just does this series of hatch lines that fill in the 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 arm and the the face that just give you enough to to sort of satisfy the eye you know that that's where the head and the arm will be but but he doesn't really get into them but this drawing has also has white highlights on it all over so which you can just see in the in the the lower leg um the top of the lower leg as you see it rendered has white heightening and then there's white heightening across the the back that that gives a sheen to the whole figure as well there's one drawing here that's not by michelangelo what is it and why did you and your partners decide to include it yeah, this is, it is, it's the only drawing not by Michelangelo in the exhibition. It's a drawing by Daniele Devolterra, and it's a portrait of Michelangelo. And, you know, I feel we're so lucky to have a drawing of Michelangelo made by an incredibly competent artist, Daniele Devolterra, who was a very close friend of Michelangelo's and was with Michelangelo when he died, aged 88. But this drawing was made by Daniele when, when Michelangelo was about 75 years old. And we get a real sense of the sort of topography of, of Michelangelo's features. And we feel we, we all feel we know Michelangelo because, because there are these paintings and sculptures that re record his features. And several of these were made by Daniele essentially after this drawing. So this drawing is the, you know, the, the definitive likeness of Michelangelo made during his lifetime, particularly in, in his old age. And we see his, his features, his, his nose, and particularly we see the bump on the bridge of the nose where it was broken when he was a student. He, he got into a, an argument with a, a sculptor called Pietro Torrigiani and Torrigiani just hit him, hit him on the nose and broke his nose. And you see the bump at the top of the nose where that Michelangelo still bore the scar. We know that they were studying together in, in, in Florence and sketching the frescoes of Masaccio and some altercation erupted and, and Torrigiani hit Michelangelo. And he seems to have been rather proud of this fact. But yeah, we, yeah, we seem you know, Michelangelo's features sort of portrayed sort of on this in this slanted way. And and Daniele then used this drawing actually to render Michelangelo's features as as one of his the apostle apostles in in a, a, a fresco that Daniele then later later did. Finally, we mentioned earlier that there are about six hundred extant drawings, but you also mentioned that Michelangelo was a a forever scrawler. Even, even on his grocery list. So there are only 600 surviving. Surely some were lost to the sands of time, but, but also Michelangelo was rather particular about his drawings. So how did, how did he treat or indeed eliminate many of them? Yeah, no, this is fascinating to me. I mean, he, you know, he, you know, he drew all the time and, and he had this very 
a specific attitude to his drawings. So, so some drawings he would keep often for decades, and but he never reused poses. It's not like he was keeping them to reuse them as many other Renaissance artists did. And then some artists he would keep he would keep for decades and then make a grocery list on the back or something, you know, and just using it as a random sheet of paper. But we do know that throughout his life, Michelangelo destroyed great quantities of his drawings. In particular, you know, we we know we know that in 1518, his assistant in Rome, Leonardo Salaio, wrote to Michelangelo. Michelangelo had just returned to Florence. Salaio was still in Rome, in Michelangelo's house in Rome. And Michelangelo had obviously asked Salaio to destroy all the drawings that remained in the house there. And Salaio writes back to, to the artist to say, you know, it's with regret, I, I have done as you asked, and I have destroyed the, the drawings. And these were probably most of the drawings for the Sistine Chapel ceiling. And a lot of the cartoons, the intermediary cartoons that, that Michelangelo made for that commission. So literally dozens and dozens, probably hundreds of drawings of drawings. It's been uncalculated that you know, if Michelangelo drew one drawing a day for the arc of his working life, and he lived to be 88, you know, a great, a great age, and he started very young, then he would have made 28,000 drawings. And that's drawing just one sketch a day. And and obviously we know on on some days you know Michelangelo made probably you know tens of drawings dozens of drawings so there is a sense that there are these probably thousands of drawings that are, are lost and even you know powerful patrons would write to Michelangelo you know because he was tied up in service to the Pope for so long to different popes you know very powerful people and you know like Isabella d'Este Federico Gonzaga would write to him to Michelangelo and say oh you know can I I know I can't get a sculpture or a painting but but maybe I can just have one of your drawings and and Michelangelo wouldn't wouldn't part with them Pietro Aretino write, writes um, on several occasions to Michelangelo saying can I have one of the drawings that you normally give to the flames because Michelangelo was famous for making these bonfires for his drawings and again Michelangelo did not oblige and when Michelangelo finally died there was a chest in his house and it had all these seals and locks and they opened it you know thinking that it would be full of all these drawings. And inside there were 10 drawings, and that's it. And Vasari records that at the end of, end of his life, Michelangelo made several bonfires of his sketches and literally piled them up and burned, burned them. So said Vasari, so that nobody would see the sort of labors he endured and that he wouldn't be seen as less than perfect. You know, he wanted to be known by his final commissions, even if today it's fa fascinating to us to see his sketches from life and, and the way that he arrived at those final commissions. Julian Brooks, thanks so much. Thank you. That's a pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.